Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of In The Ring with Acacia Clement. This episode is brought to you by our friends at OBS Sales. OBS sells more two-year-olds than any other sales company in the world. There's truly something for everyone with a diverse group at all price points. The OBS two-year-old sales combined account for 14% of graded stakes placings. That's one, two, three since 2018. On the website, you can find a horse pedigree, under tack video, and walking video. Two-year-old buyer is not only buying the horse's potential, but also the expertise of the horsemen that prepare these horses for their future. OBS is truly an international marketplace with horses having been purchased by buyers from 49 of the 50 United States, Korea, Japan, the Middle East, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Europe. We saw the OBS June sale wrap up the other week, and uh, so exciting to see a lot of these two-year-olds out on the on the racetrack now I've seen a few uh, throughout uh, Belmont already and as we get ready to kick off things at Saratoga and Del Mar I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more I'll be talking a little bit about some two-year-olds and about uh, some exciting stallions on today's show I have um two really, really interesting guests coming on. And I, I've had some amazing people on this show, but had some really fascinating conversations on today's episode. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Um, I am getting ready for the penultimate week of racing at Belmont Park before we start things at Saratoga. I'm actually on vacation next week. So this will be my final week at Belmont, which is pretty crazy for the season. And then I uh, just got back from Royal Ascot as well. So I've really gotten to see some of the top class racing recently and of course coming up this summer and i'm just so excited for things to get started um, at saratoga as always if you're planning to come on out to the racetrack especially up at the spa this summer come say hi i'm usually running back and forth between the paddock and the winter circle that's my route i walk very fast but please stop me and grab me um, and say hello and, and check in um, looking forward to a wonderful summer but as I said, I have a really great episode coming up today, so we'll get right to it and welcome in the first guest. I'm thrilled to welcome in a special guest on this week's episode of the podcast, John Sakura from Hill and Dale Farms. And we certainly have come to recognize the terrific Hill and Dale stallions that we see um, with their progeny in the winter circle all over the country, all over the world. And I'm so excited to chat with him today. John, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Acacia. Well, John, I guess let's start with kind of the, the big one, so to speak, the mighty curling and what he's done just not only with his success on the racetrack and then the legacy that he's created. Can you talk a little bit about him as a stallion and just what he means to you and your entire team? Yeah, I mean, he's really a, a pillar foundation for our stallion operation. He's one of those very rare stallions that repeatedly gets grade one winners. Mm -hmm. They show up on the championship day and um you know that's always the biggest biggest challenge is there a ceiling with the stallion and with curlin uh, there appears to be no ceiling he you know he wins sprint races he's uh, three winners on breeders cup day he's dominant belmont weekend so he's uh he's he's just one of the very rare horses that can consistently produce a grade one winner and uh, that's that's sort of the ultimate achievement and a rarity in the in the stallion. 
And that is so rare. It's kind of that intangible that we look for. Obviously, he was tremendously successful on the racetrack. Was there always kind of an expectation and a hope that he would be the kind of stallion that he's become? You know, we, we weren't involved with, with the mm -hmm. horse initially, but uh, when we acquired our interest, I just had a very strong feeling that, that you know, he's just scratching the surface of, of his ability. And I felt that he was a horse that was would be able to get, you know, classic winners. And, um, you know, he's, he's proven that in, in, in spades. You, you know, I, I'm not sure that you'd ever could, could realistically dream that, you know, he'd be one of the important horses of, of, you know, the, in, in, in the last decade, but it's turned out that way. And, uh, you know, we feel very blessed to be partners with Stone Street and um, and that group. And, you know, Curlin really carries the ship. And, uh, you know, if he's quiet for, for two weeks, then he gets three grade one winners the next weekend. So <laughs> he's really, uh, he's a horse without, as I said, without limitation. And, uh, you know, they just, the normal rules don't seem to apply to, mm -hmm. to great horses. And, you know, in the breeding shed, he's one of those great stallions. What kind of impact do you think he's had on the breed in general? We kind of hear that phrase breed shaper um, thrown around sometimes, but he, he truly has had an impact on the breed. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. You know, he's got uh, several sons that uh, will retire and, and go to study. He's already making his mark as a sire of sires. And, you know, I believe with, you know, Cody's wish and elite mm -hmm. power and, and all that is in front of him, I think, you know, 20, 30 years from now. You know, you'll see him as one of the foundational sires, certainly imparts, uh, you know, classic blood. They're not early two-year-olds, and, you know, it's something rare to find today, a horse that can, you know, get a horse that, you know, can run seven-eighths, but also can run mm -hmm. a mile and a half. And we're really lacking in the sort of that uh, proven classic quality of stamina, blood, and certainly he's, uh, you know, he, he, he imparts that to his offspring and, you know, with with the right mare, he also breeds a miler, so he's very 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 versatile. And um, you know, I think his his daughters will be important, and mm -hmm. he's just going to be one of those legacy stallions. You mentioned becoming a sire of sires, and we've seen that already uh, with another stallion that you stand with good magic. Of course, being the sire of the Derby winner Mage this year, how exciting is that to see? Yeah, that's uh, was a fantastic achievement. You know, it, it it speaks again to the greatness of Curlin, mm -hmm. in that you know a freshman sire by Curlin can have a Kentucky Derby winner and finish second, third in the Preakness. That was, uh, you know, just just a great achievement, and hopefully is just the beginning of him, um, you know, emerging as uh, you know Curlin's heir apparent and as a great representative of you know the magnificent Curlin. Good Magic himself was, was precocious. He won the Breeders' Cup as a two-year-old, as we all know. And um, he was kind of one of those those early types that was also very good as a three-year-old and just unfortunately ran into a Triple Crown winner in his crop. But seeing him be so successful so early as a stallion, were you kind of expecting that to carry over as he got a lot of buzz? And even now at the two-year-old sales, we saw um, the Good Magic sell for $2 million in, um, in March this year as well they seem like they're early as well yeah i mean you know they're not sort of the five eighths of mile mm -hmm. speedball but they're early two-year-olds um they you know they came on the scene sort of mid-season mid and got better with every start and 
every month there's more of them and uh you know there's he's 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 achieved all you could hope for and 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 more so in in his first crop so you know there's always an expectation when when you bring a sire to your farm that he's a horse that that you're passionate about that you believe in i only take horses that that i have a strong feeling about and i'm not saying that i'm correct all the time i've, I've been wrong as well but you know sort of a, a passion and belief in 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 every horse that we stand is something that we have some of them are sort of obvious and some of them others might find a little eclectic a little different or or i wonder why you know they're standing that horse and uh, you know we we have our own rationale and reasoning for for every horse we bring in you know they don't all turn out but you know we we have a belief that they have the ability to be become important sires a horse like army mule mm -hmm. you know i question frisian fire and and he didn't have a, a really long and durable career but he was brilliant he's He's uh, far exceeding everybody's expectations, and uh, he's going to be an important sire. So it's it's you know it's rewarding when the obvious uh, work work out, and it's also maybe even more rewarding when a horse you take a little chance with, or there might be deemed a deficit in their either performance or their pedigree when when they become important sires too. So you know, I think we like to sort of be across the board. If you like a horse, you like the horse, and you know, he doesn't have to uh, stand for $50,000 to eventually become a really important sire. What are some of the things that you do look for when acquiring stallions? Like you said, we've seen you be very creative and maybe also with some horses that didn't race that much. Uh, McLean's Music, I think a great example with the tremendous sire that he's turned out to be. What are some of the things that you look for that are maybe non-negotiables for you? Yeah, you know, I don't know if there's a non-negotiable. For me, it's really... Uh, and it, an intuitive feeling that you sure. know there's something about the horse that they turn you on or they don't and you know being being in the business of being around horses for a long time i i don't know you just some horses you get a strong feeling about and others are you're sort of lukewarm about and um you know, it doesn't mean you're always right some horses that that you really don't pay attention to become really important sires and you wonder what you missed there and you're mm -hmm. always reevaluating your your concept and um, you know what 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 you deem as quality and qualities and sire you're looking for and you know no, nobody's always right and uh, you you keep learning so um, mm -hmm. if, if I like a horse I like a horse and sort of try not to talk myself into or out of anything and make it really a sort of organic and natural uh, appeal if you have it and if you don't then on to the next because you mm -hmm. know you really have to be able to stand beside behind your sire when you're talking to clients and and they have to hear an enthusiasm in your voice when you know you why don't you bring to this you know particular sure. horse say army mule and they was i don't know about that horse and they say you know the first time you run the grade one race he'd never run in a stake before it's just off the track record it's new york it's quality you know there's the only sire in his pedigree is our native he's an important sire you know, Parisian Fire is the son of AP Indy. He's mm -hmm. a champion in Australia as a sprinter. So, you know, there's there's oftentimes more to a horse than really what's in on the surface. You know, when when I bought Candy Ride and, you know, Argentina and Pedigree, and but there's, you know, uh, there's Leaf Art and Blushing Groom, and he's a wonderful racehorse. And, 
you know, uh, sort of as a phenotype, he was a, a different, uh, he had his own, he, he was sort of a, a unique horse to look at. And, you know, sometimes I, I think a lot of those horses that have a unique physical trait are often important sires. Mm. Now, we talk a lot about the sires, and they often get a lot of the credit, too. But you also have some very important mares at the farm. And, and as we know, in the world of breeding, that is, is just as important to support a stallion with a quality mare. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're thrilled this weekend. One of the families have cultivated for well, more than 20 years, uh, better than honor and teaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, her daughter modeling was the, the dam with the Belmont winner. And... Um, you know, better than honor, Sarah Jazeel and Rags to, Rich, to Riches, two Belmont winners. So there's three three Belmont winners from an immediate family, a uh, you know a mare and her granddaughter, and you know that's I think that's a sort of a, a legacy achievement of a particular pedigree. And um, been quiet there for a couple of years, and now it looks like it's re- reemerging and coming back like most of those great great mm-hmm. pedigree. So. Yeah, mares are very rewarding. You know, we're we're on the farm, so see mares and foals, and you know, as you do it long enough, you start to see, you know, granddaughters and mm-hmm. you know, daughters of important mares, and you know, uh, sort of the same applies. Not not every mare works out. Some wonderful, glorious race mares are not producers, but mm-hmm. then possibly their 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 daughters become become the important producers. So you know, it's a game of uh, uh, eternal challenge, never have it figured out. You know, just when you think nothing's going to go right, something great happens. <laughs> great happens. You go, I'm too smart for this game. And nothing <laughs> right. Like, why am I doing this? So, you know, trying to keep a balance and a you know, level-headedness about you is, is the challenge. And, you know, same for trainers and mm-hmm. same for everybody involved in the business. You know, you have Trainer as a two-year-old wins by eight, and you know <clears throat> he's in the condition book looking for the next stake, and shins are sore, and then this happens, mm-hmm. and it rains and comes off the turf, and you have to scratch, and you know. So you know, I <clears throat> I, I often say that people think the the farm is some bucolic, beautiful place, and there's babies in the field, and how glorious and easy is this? And in the scenes, there's a thousand things that can and do go wrong, and it's the same as a racetrack the horse wins in hand and, and everybody goes, wow, what a, what a wonderful mm-hmm. life. And then you don't know about the two that scratched the one that had mm-hmm. to have a certain, you know, someone they had a disagreement with the owner and they changed trainers. And so it's, uh, I think we, we all face our, <clears throat> our unique challenges and the horses are, are, uh, flesh and blood and therefore lots can go wrong. And, uh, I, I don't know that it is this way, but it always seems that, you know, the most important horse at the most important time. That's when when <laughs> a tragedy or setback seems to be right around the corner. So you, you learn you learn to deal with that, and everybody does. And if you're not thick skinned and you don't realize that that's part of the game, you won't you won't have a, a durable career in the horse business. That's for sure. That's so well said, and it's so true. And I think, like you said, I mean, for a jockey, for a trainer, even for somebody that's a, a gambler too, you, you have your ups and downs, and there are things that can really knock you down a peg. Um, but but I think all of those tough parts of racing make 
makes the excitement, the wins, the successes that much more rewarding. And what people I think sometimes don't realize if you're just maybe a casual fan or on the outskirts in the world of breeding, it really is a, a game of patience and so many failures with then striking lightning yeah. and, and something coming together to create something beautiful and something successful. Yeah, that's, that's, that's well said. You know, I'm went through my my book this morning on uh, our breeding season and you know you know we have 85 percent of our mares in full and i look at the mares that aren't in full and just so happened you know one one the spinster winner one's a great winner, one has a current stakes winner so you can't pick and choose uh mm -hmm. who, who gets in full in fact one of my sons asked me a few months ago dad how come ever something always goes wrong it's an important mare. So, you know, the goal is to surround yourself with quality. Therefore, any any setback, you know, is is a setback to to the horse or mare of quality. And um, you know, that's uh, that's the way it goes. And I remember when Lucas once said that, you know, when when, when times are tough and things are bad, and you know, you, you've had a, a tragedy, whatever it might be, with, with an animal, you got to draw back on on that that memory of, of a particular achievement of note and, and really let that mm -hmm. sort of radiate and sink in with you and uh, you know sort of uh, soothe that 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 sad feeling uh, that that you're having at the moment and you know it's it's sort of complex because you know yes one it's a business uh, two these horses have to you know the yearling sales etc produce income so that you can expand, you can mm -hmm. stay competitive. And they're also animals. And you know, when mm -hmm. you live on a farm and you have an attachment to the animal, which mm -hmm. I did, um, you know, it becomes a, an emotional element as well. You know, it's hard to be cold and callous when uh, you know, when, when when something goes wrong and you know, if a mare doesn't get in full and, you know, she's eighteen, nineteen and you're hoping for one filly because you want to retain the last filly to mm -hmm. sort of perpetuate that that bloodline and the marriage has been important to you. Then you second guess yourself. Maybe I should have kept the one before. And, you know, it, it's very hard to plan ahead for horses because they don't, they, they don't follow your calendar. And they don't, they don't, you know, it, it's, uh, it's really day by day. You know, every day mm -hmm. we wake up, there's something new, maybe, you know, getting ready for the yearling sale, the horse doesn't vet. And he was your best yearling. And, you know, uh, a mare loses an early pregnancy at, you know, 42 days. Now she won't come back into heat. And then, you know, your two-year-old worked great. And, uh, and so you, you you get the balance, sort of yin and yang of disappointment and she, achievement, expectation. And, uh, you know, you just have to remain op optimistic and steadfast in, in, in your belief and, you know, try to do things the right way and, you know, with, with character and, always putting the horse first. And mm -hmm. if you put the horse first, then I think whatever happens, you can, you can say to yourself, I did the best that, that I could, you know, and uh, I think you know, we read in the news about aftercare and some, you know, some mm -hmm. of these issues. And I think if that would permeate the business a little more where, you know, the importance of the horse as an animal uh, really would, would touch somebody. I think we could, we could solve a lot of these sort of issues by ourselves, everybody knows what's right and what's wrong, mm -hmm. and you know it. It becomes louder when the stakes get get higher. But you know, a horse needs to be turned out. They need time. 
you know, the horse had been good to somebody who can afford it and he's got a chip in the knee and he won nine races. Well, it's time for that horse to retire and, and, and let him enjoy a second life rather than, you know, drop him in for 16 and he'll win and get claimed. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, you know, so yes, it's a business, but it's also a balance that sort of morality, the conscience, the right thing to do, as well as, uh, having to pay your bills. You know, I have some pension bears here that will never have foals and, you know, you have to bring them up in the winter and, you know, you spend money and, but they're, they're, they've, they've done a lot. They sort of, they've given their productive life to, you know, the, the farm and, and, and it's not their fault. And, you know, they can't have a foal and, you know, jockey club rules the way they are. There's, you know, there's oftentimes young mares that, you know, that, that, you know, they, they ovulate. They're 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 reproductively sound. Other than they might have a cervical tear or something that doesn't let them carry a foal to to term. So that's 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 very frustrating when uh, you know. But the the rules are the way they are, mm -hmm. and this is the way it is. And you take the good and the bad. And you know, I, I always sort of. I, of course, you want to win yourself, but. I celebrate achievement, at, you know, for others too. Even people I don't know, some, you know, little guy buys a horse. So just like the that Archangelo, yeah. you know, thirty-five thousand dollar Arrogate, and you know, buys the horse in front of everyone. Bought the horse himself and wins the Belmont and the first female trainer to ever win a Classic. And you know, turns out we bred the dam. Well, that, well, that's a great connection. But even if not, that that's a great story, and I think mm -hmm. that's what makes the business unique there's so many there's so many great stories and you know people give so much to the to the game often unrecognized you know assistant trainers that have been with somebody for 25 years mm -hmm. up through their ups and through their downs and you know grooms that live at the racetrack and you know guys that claim a horse and they wind up winning a breeder's cup and there there's a it, it it's uh, it's a great tapestry of stories i i don't think we tell them well enough or often enough because uh, they're very compelling you could walk into any barn with a tape recorder and and tap someone on the shoulder and talk to them for 15 minutes and you'd have a great story be it a you know a hot walker or a groove a trainer or, you know just uh, what it what it takes to get there it was you know the george weaver story and mm -hmm. losing his wife and then you know winning at royal Alaska and the owner that's been with him 20 some odd years. I mean, those are, those are fantastic stories. You don't, you don't find those in, in most sports. No, you really don't. And you're so right. I mean, even just this morning, I was uh, on the backside with my husband. I was talking to one of our hot walkers who said, I've been here for 27 years. And you're absolutely right. Every single barn, every farm has that kind of story. And while we know there's so much work that goes into it behind the scenes, your farm really is a bucolic place. I, I had the opportunity to visit and take a tour of Alapa a few years back. And if anybody's in Kentucky, I can't recommend it enough. And it's such a historic place. And you've done such a beautiful job with it can you talk a little bit about alapa uh, what it means to to the world of horse racing in general and how special it is to have your operation base there now yeah you know it, it was a huge decision to mm -hmm. relocate to alapa it was sort of a uh, i guess cliche diamond in the rough but mm -hmm. a historic great place that um needed a, a lot of care a lot of restoration and 
but in sort of the bones of the farm and and everything about it i just i'd never seen anything like it and you know we've done the best we can to not only restore but enhance the property and it's big enough that it can accommodate all of our needs we're all in one place feel sort of a a sense of stewardship, stewardship and, and obligation uh, to, you know, to make it great and prominent again. Uh, Ed Sims, who founded the farm, had this idea of building a, an estate of grandeur. And, uh, you know, he did that. And, you know, through generations, uh, it had sort of uh, different, different representations and, mm-hmm. and now to be uh, a fully focused, complete, cohesive thoroughbred farm and, and, you know, um, reuniting three different tracks and, you know, fencing paddocks that have never had a horse. So the, all those things were, you know, feel, I sort of, if you're going to be here, I, I, I felt that responsibility and, you know, you have to overcome some of the mm-hmm. stigma and stereotypes because it was very, really a private farm. And while a lot of people were aware of it, most people were aware of it were, you know, aware of it 50 years ago, not today. Right. So I think we've, uh, you know, we've, we've done our part with the aesthetics and, you know, the horticulture and the husbandry and, and, you know, we, we have it fully functioning. And then, you know, the most important things are the horses that stand behind the gates and, you know, with the stands and the mares and, and, you know, a loyal group of people that, that, that came with me, um, I think we've we've enhanced the, everything that 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 we have we have done. You know, the other farm was wonderful. It just became an opportunity where you know it was three hundred and ten acres, and you know now we're about almost twenty five hundred acres. And just wanted a one one intense challenge in in my life. And I kind of like to have have goals, and and mm-hmm. the harder they are, the the, the the more you get attracted to them, you know, <laughs> there has to be a way out, but there probably were times in, in this whole process where it was overwhelming. But once you, you know, I said, once you swim across the lake and say you're halfway there and I can't go any further, well, <laughs> just as far to reach your goal than try to turn around and go back. So, um, you know, it, it took a lot emotionally, financially, and, and uh, family and adjustment and 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 everything but i always I, I believed in the motive and uh, i i believe in in the, the finished product well like i said it, it really is an incredible place um and uh you you can kind of feel the history there too and, and feel everything that's behind i think you've done a terrific job of retaining that history while also developing and looking towards the future and and i liked what you said about stewardship because that really is in, in large part what the racing industry is kind of about right we celebrate the history and the rich history that the sport has but we also try to look ahead for some advancements in the future to promote our game yeah, absolutely. You know, that's why, I, you know, I hear every year talking about the triple crown and the mm-hmm. change. In, yeah, you could make it easier. You could make it more convenient. But the triple crown itself, if you are to win the triple crown, I guess my, my opinion, I'm not like, uh, I don't have some orthodox opinion. <laughs> of, like it would be awful, terrible, oh my God. But I, I think that the triple crown should be left as it is mm-hmm. i think that 
in order to be comparative for generations. I think the, the same conditions that apply to Secretariat should apply to American Pharaoh, should apply to Justify, should apply to Seattle SLU. You know, if you start saying, well, we'll shorten the race, we'll give you an extra three weeks, it doesn't diminish the achievement. It's still a great achievement. But I think historically those standards should always be the standard. And um, that's just you know the, the way I feel about it. I agree with you. And we had a... Uh... We had some great stories in this year's Triple Crown as well. Congratulations on the connection from you and some really special runners. Um, of Cody's Wish, a favorite story every single time I get to see him run. And um, just quickly want to wrap up on him because, like you said, a son of Curlin and what he's done on the racetrack on top of his connection with young Cody Dorman and his family. That's kind of what you were saying, I think, the epitome of some of the stories, the great stories we have around the track. Yeah, for sure. All, all credit to Darley. You know, it's easy mm -hmm. to accommodate somebody and get a picture, give them a hat and send them on their way. And, but yeah. they've, 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 they've made the whole family feel like they're, they own the horse, they're part of the horse. And, uh, you know, they, they didn't do it for publicity. They did it for uh, a humanitarian purpose. And, uh, you know, I think that you can, you, you can give meaning to a poor kid's life who is confined to a wheelchair and, you know, nonverbal and has all of these challenges and uh, you can you know, make his life transformative and share that story with others. I mean, oh, that's a, that's, that's a special thing. And then the, it's almost like the horse feels the obligation where, yeah. you know, he, he said, I'm, I'm not going to get beat. And uh, <laughs> I think he's the best horse in training, you know, and I agree. Not because he's a curling just because of his performance and uh, not because we're going to stand him because he'll go mm -hmm. to Darley, just that it's a, uh, just the genuine story and, you know, credit to Dan Pride and all of that group for, uh, you know, for being so accommodating and then sharing the story as well, you know, where it's, you know, not what not to brag or not for publicity, but just to let, you know, sort of let that light out is, uh, I, I think it's uh, certainly, it was a story of the year last year and I think it continues to be, you know, unique. I was fortunate enough to, be at the British Cup at Keeneland and go to the winner's circle with Barbara Banky and 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 there was there wouldn't have been enough tissue for everybody. And <laughs> I I fought the tears, but they were they were just ready to topple. <laughs> I love it. Such a special story and a special horse. Looking forward to seeing him again this summer, too. And I'm sure we'll see a lot more from uh, the sons and daughters of Curlin and uh, all the other terrific stallions. John, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I really, really enjoyed getting to chat with, chat with you. Well, thank, thanks for having me and thanks for promoting the sport and doing such thank a great you. job and being eloquent and uh, every time you present. Thank you. Well, last week, all eyes were on all of the exciting action going on at Royal Ascot. And the biggest price winner that we saw that week for sure was in the Group 2 Norfolk with Valiant Force. And I'm so happy to be joined by his co-breeder, RJ Rangel, who's uh, taking a little time to join me here. And RJ, you had just mentioned to me just how exciting it has been. Can you talk me through, first of all, your emotions seeing that horse being successful on such a big stage like that? Well, it was a big feeling for me because, you know, being a small breeder, having only a couple of mares, and, and that was the first baby out of the mare, mm -hmm. and it was exciting. You know, you're always expecting something good to happen, and but I never expected it out of this cold, but 
it was great to see him going to the lead and taking the race, taking over. Such a big success. And as mentioned in the group two Norfolk, that was actually the first win of his career as well. What a way to do it. He'd had two races at the Cara already. And um, the, the tote board kind of suggested that there weren't, you know, super expectations for him, but what a success story. No, it was wonderful. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I saw that he was over 150 to one and I figured oh, I just want to put $2 to win in place just wow. to support him. Yeah. You know, when he took the lead and go, going to two furlongs to go, he was still in the lead and then one furlong to go and he was still in the lead. I, start, I started getting teary-eyed, you know, and just yeah. thinking about all the efforts and all the mornings and afternoons, you know, working with the mare and the baby and trying to get them ready. I mean, it was, it just pays off in a big way. And you're the co-breeder with Spencer Farm and um, had the opportunity to breed your mare to Malibu Moon. I read through some of the incentive programs with Spencer. Can you tell me a little bit about how the mating came to be? Well, you know, I was having an unproven mare mm -hmm. and she's, she's a nice mare by Quality Road. And, you know, first of all, you don't breed an unproven mare to an unproven sire. So I was trying to, to get a, a, a sire like Malibu Moon to get some speed into her mm -hmm. and you know, and Malibu Moon is well known. He has all the credentials to be a good stallion, and he he was a good stallion. And I wanted to breed to him, but obviously, being a small guy, I couldn't afford it. So I asked for the full share, and um, Ned was kind enough to give it to me, and we went ahead and did it. And uh, it was just a wonderful thing, you know. He's, you know, they helped me, and things happened. You know, I mean, it, it was just great. With all these people, you know, I wouldn't be here talking to you and mm -hmm. other people that congratulated me. So you get to go to Malibu Moon, as you mentioned, a, a proven stallion. And I saw you only have two mares. Can you talk a little bit about um, the investment and about what it takes? Because e even just one mare is a lot of work, a lot of prep that goes into it. Well, yeah, you know, and I, I take care of it myself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have to uh, find a place for the mare, which I, I, I keep my mares where you take care of your own. You just paid mm -hmm. per head. Every morning I have to come here and, you know, it's an effort to come here in the morning, take care of them. And then after work, come back here and take care of them again. And then when something happens, you got to practically spend the night in your car. You know, if they have a bad eye or, or if they colic or something, you got to, you know, just stay here and, and look after them. But it's a big effort, a lot of work, a lot of time, you know, a lot of luck. Um, but, you know, after after everything is said and done, it, it pays off. You know, I mean, it doesn't happen always this way. But, you know, when you love horses and you want to be part of the industry, mm -hmm. give it all it takes. You do whatever you whatever you, is in your hands to 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 be in the business. <laughs> It's not an easy business to be part of too, right? There, there's so many ups and downs and you never really know what you're going to get when it comes with breeding. Why is, uh, is having those mares and having your small breeding operation such an appeal to you? Well, it's it just, it just great to, to be part of it. You know, I love the outdoors. Yeah. I always love horses and, you know, and it's just a, a necessity for me, you know, like it, it makes me happy being out in the outdoors and being with them. You know, I feed them, I watch them and I stay there until they're done and I just watch them eat and watch their behavior. And, but it, I mean, it, it's just a wonderful uh, place to be, you know, I mean, to me, the, the horse industry, you meet people from all over the world um, and, and, and anybody can, can join in, you know, obviously at a small scale, but, you know, racing, racing is for kings and, 
for as far as breeding, you know, you can be part of it and and have fun and get your enjoyment, you know, out of it. And what does that mean to you for somebody that only has a couple of mares and you, like you said, racing is for Kings and, and sometimes we don't get a chance to see those stories of maybe the little guy being successful. How special is that for you? Oh, it's real special. I mean, I, I couldn't, you know, I mean, to, to be able to receive all those phone calls of people that know me, congratulate me, they know me from a long time because I used to have a farm and when the industry when the, the economy came, you know, I lost it and I was mm-hmm. practically homeless. And, you know, when I came to Spendthrift, you know, I, because of the incentives, that's why I got, I got back in it. And, but it, I mean, to me, it means everything, you know, all the people that call me, some people, they didn't even have my number. I don't know how, that, how they got my number, but they, <laughs> and they congratulated me, they tested me, text me. And it was great. I mean, it was, I mean, like I said, it's, it's teary eye. I mean, it's like you practically, you want to cry. Yeah, you know it's wonderful, and that's what this game does to you too. And you mentioned the ups and downs, and and some hard times with the economy. Now um, you're the assisting yearling manager, I believe, at Spendthrift. Can you tell me a little bit about balancing breeding and and doing your own investments with what you do with Spendthrift Farm? Tell us a little bit about you. Well, it, it's hard because you know, like when I was working as, I was the stallion, the assistant stallion manager, and I was trying to take care of my horses. And I really loved that job. But you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't come and take care of my horses properly because during the breeding season, you gotta go, you you breed at, at six o'clock, you breed at 11 in the morning, you breed at two o'clock, and then you come back at six o'clock in the evening and sometimes at nine o'clock. So it was too much for me to be able to come to the farm and take care of my horses properly. Mm-hmm. So after two, three years, I asked Nate if I can move on to the yearlings because they needed an assistant there. So he agreed to move me over. And now that I'm over there, you know, I have more time. I have more mm-hmm. time to my horses. Obviously, during prepping season, you know, I got to go back and turn out at seven. But but still, you know, it gives me more time and it's more, I'm more comfortable. I, I'm more relaxed. Um, I can take my time more. And it's just... Uh, it's just a, a great opportunity to be able to balance both of those, you know, my, my me being a breeder and working at Spendthrift and Spendthrift, they've been so kind to, you know, mm-hmm. give me the time that I need to, to be able to do what I do, you know, um, but it's wonderful. You know, like I said, you know, people, people that lay a hand, you know, is, is a, they understand what you're doing yeah. and they give you the time that you need to, so you can do what you want to do, what you love. And, you know, and it's uh, it's just a wonderful thing, one wonderful thing to be surrounded with people like that. You mentioned Ned Toffee. He's been on the show before, too. And uh, when I reached out to him, he said you had known each other back from your days at Dixiana Farm. And he had nothing but great things to say about you and how hard you work. And uh, you mentioned the relationships. And I think in, in racing, too, it, it, it's such a big piece of it, right? Who you come into contact with, who can help you along the way. And you never know how those relationships are going to pay off in the future. Exactly. So that's why you always got to keep your doors open. Yeah, so true. Uh, so tell us about the mayor. Um, future plans for her. Does she have any other foals we should look out for? Well, I tried to breed her after the Malibu moon to Lauren Nelson. And um, she did. She never caught. You know, mm-hmm. it was, I bet her four times. I, I lost a whole year. But, you know, they were not compatible. You know, sometimes the mayor with the stallion, they're not compatible. And no matter mm-hmm. how many times you try, they don't get in foal. So I lost the one year 
and then the following year, I brought I bred her to Mitoli, um, um, and she yeah. cut right right away first time, and and uh, I got a baby by Mitoli, and then I bred her back to Vekoma. so she's in Fort Vekoma. And uh, she's due early, I think, uh, March of next year. Very exciting. A lot of speed in there as well. Yeah. You know, the mare is a big, leggy, long mare. And, you know, and to me, it seems like that works with her, you know? Right. I mean, uh, I mean, it, it, it looks it looks good. I mean, obviously, first fall, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed for the yeah. first fall to, to be doing what he's doing. And hopefully, these other two babies can follow up. And then maybe, maybe the following year I can improve to something else that has more stamina that can mm -hmm. go longer, you know, with her. Um, but now that I know she gives me nice babies, you know, they're all correct. I mean, this baby that I have now here is correct. And she has a lovely looking body. You know, she's a little long, but but she, she's really balanced. And um, I'm really looking forward to sell her here in November. You know, you got to strike when the mm -hmm. iron is... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And uh, hey, I think a Royal Ascot winner in the in the first foal is a pretty good way to start. Um, but of course, when you have the success, when you have the big winners, everybody wants to interview you, and and that's when you have the stories done. But um, as we know, you know, there's so many ups and downs along the way. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned as far as the breeding game is concerned? Well, when the economy hit, you know, like obviously, I, I was deep into the business, you know, like I practically own like maybe 28, 30 horses. Mm. And then, um, you know, when the economy went bad, you know, I, my clients lost too, and I had an equine loan and I had my farm financed by the bank. And so everything hit me just at once, you know, the bank pushed me to sell the horses when nobody was buying. And then I had to sell the farm when nobody was buying, you know, people coming to look, but they, you know, they always want to low offer you on the farm and, so anyways, I tried, I started to sell my equipment to buy me another month. So slowly I, I run out of my equipment. And I couldn't, I couldn't uh, pay my monthly mortgage. Mm. And finally, after a while, well, the bank took over. So that was a big, big lesson that I, you know, that I will never forget. But, mm. but you know, with this excitement, having two mares and uh, violent force doing what he's doing, you know, it makes you forget that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it makes smile again on your face and it makes you think that it's okay you know we can mm -hmm. continue on you know as long as I got two hands and two legs and I'm healthy we can continue on forward Oh, that's just amazing. And I love that. And uh, and like you said, striking while the iron's hot. So some sales to look forward to. Is this something that you would ever want to expand, have some more mares? Or is it really important for you that you just have a, a couple and you're so hands-on like that? Yeah, I guess I've, I've, eventually I will. I would like mm -hmm. to to uh, expand, you know, maybe have some five to seven mares. But, you know, just take it slowly, you know, because what happened to me last time mm -hmm. when... Um, I how do you say you shoot you you shoot more than what you can yeah. swallow or whatever. Yes, exactly. So I mean, I, it was just a bad bad situation, but but yeah, I love this business so much that I would love to have eventually, you know, a small little farm that I can buy for myself mm -hmm. and and keep you know a few mares and tr try to do it all over again, you know. But like I said, being more careful and mm -hmm. you know, don't go over your head. And working with horses is not an easy job either. You're up early, it's late nights, like you said, in the in the middle of the night sometimes, and things always happen. Um, but it's it's I think 
everybody that works with horses hands-on has a, a passion for it. Where did that passion start for you? Well, my father, when I when we came over from Mexico back in, uh, it was, what was it? Um, it was at 87? Mm. Well, no, 77, when the last triple crown, the firm won it. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I was about 11, 12 years old. So I went to school, and then every Saturday and Sunday, my dad used to take me to the racetrack, and I used to help him muck a stall or, or hawak a horse. And during the vacations, you know, I, I will go to Del Mar and we'll stay in the tech room and, you know, I stay with him and, and walk some hots and, you know, just help them. And it slowly uh, that passion developed from there. And mm-hmm. it was just a great thing. I, you know, I used to just stay in the barn, you know, all the mm-hmm. time. The trainers loved that because I just hang around the barn and take care of the horses and mm-hmm. always be aware of things. And they, they felt really secure, you know, that I was little RJ there, you know, watching the horses. (laughs) I love that story. Well, and now you have bred a Royal Ascot winner. Um, RJ, I I can't wait to continue to follow your mare and the horses that you've bred and and Valiant Force as well. I understand the Breeders' Cup could be on the table. Um, There's there's so much to look forward to with him as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm really excited. I mean, I guess you you, you win your end, so I guess I'm going to go, you know. (laughs) Peter Scap gives you a couple of tickets. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We'll be rooting for you. Um, RJ, thank you so much for taking the time. Best of luck in the future. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It was a- very enjoyable. And that'll do it for today's episode. Uh, Didn't I tell you? It was a good one. I really, really enjoyed the conversations today. Hope that you enjoyed them as much as I did. I'm getting ready for Saratoga. So I'll be back soon with another episode as we... We'll pretty shortly be diving into the world of the yearling sales. Almost done with two-year-olds, which is pretty crazy how quickly time has gone by halfway through 2023 already, which is just insane. So looking forward to a wonderful summer. Um, Thanks as always for listening. Uh, As I say each and every time, please send me any topics of interest, any people of interest. Always appreciate everybody's suggestions and try to tie some of those in as well. We'll see you next time on In the Ring. Thanks as always for joining me.